Good morning, E3. Good morning. I'm Pastor Mike. Welcome. So good to see you guys this morning. Uh, let's talk about epic fails. See, in high school, I took French, and I don't remember a word of French. That's what high school languages are for, correct? But I do remember that it gave me one of the truly most epic fails of my academic career. You see, we were given a group project, and in groups, we were tasked with researching, cooking, and presenting a French dish, which seems simple enough, but my group was overachievers. So we decided to go all out with a flambe. I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it. I don't speak French. Anyway, it's a te technique where you take a pastry or a dish, you cover it with liquor, and then boom, light it on fire, right? It's extravagant. It was an ambitious choice on our part. We studied our butts off. We prepared the dish, and then we stood in front of the class ready to awe them. So we dosed the cake. We added flame. And absolutely nothing happened. To which we panicked added more liquor, <laughs> tried to light it again, nothing happened. I still don't know what went wrong, but I do know the result, which is that we served, after all of this fanfare, a soggy, completely inedible cake <laughs> that made the whole room reek of Maker's Mark. <laughs> a truly epic failure, y'all. Apparently, fine dining is uh, more than just having good ideas. You actually need to be able to implement them effectively within reality. Who knew? But I'm comforted to know that this struggle is not uniquely mine. You see, many of the epic fails in human history have actually come out of not necessarily bad ideas, but the inability to implement good ideas effectively in reality. That frustrating truth that ideas only really matter if they actually, you know, work. A couple examples. In 1453, the Turks besieged Constantinople, the capital and seat of the Byzantine Empire, a city designed to withhold a siege for years. Except for one small problem with the implementation part, the Byzantines left a gate unlocked which proved to be one of the decisive turning points of the siege. <laughs> the Turks poured in, the city fell, and it was actually basically the end of the Roman Empire. Or, how about some more modern examples? This is from my background in political science and Russian language. In the early 90s, following the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia sought to quickly privatize their econ economy. So they came up with a voucher plan. Essentially, what it was, was they gave their citizens shares of stocks within the factories and the companies that they worked in while they were under communist rule. The idea was simple and seemed good enough. Move these industries from state ownership to ownership by the people, private ownership pretty much overnight. Again, seemed like a good strategy, except for over the past century, the average Russian had lived in a society and an economy that had no concept of private ownership. They had no concept, much less, of what stocks are. Thus, what happened? Well, for them, stocks were pieces of paper that couldn't be used to buy anything tangible, a.k.a. bread, food, you know, the stuff that keeps people alive, a.k.a. they were useless. So what did they do? They started trading them for things like bread, vodka, water, anything which helped create what are now known today as the oligarchs, billionaires that essentially own the majority of the Russian economy. 
Those who realized what was happening bought as much of these stocks as they could for way cheaper than they were actually worth and essentially bought entire industries overnight, something that has birthed economic issues that are still felt in Russia today. One more. This is one of my favorites from the book Freakonomics. In 1989, Mexico City had the worst air pollution in the world. So to curb it, officials essentially launched a program that banned drivers from using their vehicle one day per week based on the last digit of their license plate number. Pretty simple idea, right? Cars driving less equals less air pollution. Except for you fast forward a little bit and the air pollution had gotten significantly worse. Why is that? Well, apparently, people, to make sure they could still drive every day, just sold their newer car for two older cars so they could bypass the system entirely. Older cars with far greater emissions. Epic fail. In each case, you had good ideas, in theory, that when acted upon and implemented within reality just didn't work. They did not achieve their intended purpose. And these examples capture the struggle that we all have as human beings. It seems baked into our humanity to find the balance between right ideas and action. And our faith isn't excluded. One of the most common issues that I encounter as a pastor is someone wrestling with balancing, knowing the right things about Jesus, having the right ideas about Jesus, and actually putting them into action within their daily lives. The balance between faith and works. People who can say to me that they believe God is faithful, but struggle to actually trust him when it comes to their hardships and their trials. Or who proclaim that Jesus calls us as his people to generosity, but are trapped with that fear of scarcity and thus don't give or who know, and this is a big one, they know that we're prohibited at, across all levels when it comes to judgment. And yet, they find those judgmental thoughts popping up when that person posts that thing on Facebook. Anybody? The struggle is universal. We all have this in some form. Because, quite frankly, thinking of good ideas requires a lot less work than actually implementing good ideas. Finding that balance between faith and works is hard. But without it, we miss out on much of what Jesus calls us to. Real change, real-world impact for and in the kingdom of God. It's a balance that we need to get right as disciples. And thus, it's going to direct our summer series, which we're calling Faith That Works, where we're going to focus intently on one of my personal favorites when it comes to the books of the Bible, the book of James, one of the most unique, subversive, and powerful books in the New Testament. See, we're going to slow down this summer, and we're going to walk through this book fully, chapter by chapter. Because James takes this balance incredibly, and I mean incredibly, seriously. We shall see that for him, faith in Jesus shouldn't be an epic fail. It fundamentally should not be a good idea that in reality does absolutely nothing, that does not work.
No. See, James believes that balancing our ideas, our faith and actions, our faith and our works is not only possible in this life, but it is necessary. He is convinced that faith can't only reside in our heads, in theory, or in the clouds. It's meant to be active, alive, transformative, here and now. It's meant to be a faith that actually works. Ding, ding. A faith that actually works for us, shaping how we experience life in better ways. And it's a faith that actually works for others, transforming our actions in real, tangible ways that impact our world. And how we adopt that faith is going to be center stage for the next few months. And y'all, I am excited. I cannot tell you how much I love this book. It speaks to us today, just like it did in the first century, in some awesome ways. Are y'all ready? Are y'all ready? Huzzah! Well, let's talk about boring history stuff. (laughs) So let's talk about the book itself. Now to clarify, I've already lied to you once, James isn't a book. It's actually a letter. Who knew? One of the 21 that comprised the end of the New Testament. And the letters are tough. See, what I often see is that people kind of tend to treat them as grab bags of inspiring verses. There's something that really moves them. They just pluck it out of context and throw it on like a bumper sticker. And that's nice, but it can actually get us into a lot of trouble because it can, it can literally lead us to misunderstand what these letters are about. For one, the letters are carefully crafted from beginning to end to form one literary whole. That's because writing letters in the ancient world was incredibly expensive. Between materials and delivering them often over hundreds of miles by foot, these letters that we find in the New Testament would have cost their writers thousands of dollars today, which we don't really realize as we just flip them open. Thus, their authors wrote arduously to capture an intentional larger message. Every point is interconnected. They have slaved over these letters to say exactly what they want to say. And we need to read them with that in mind. And second, these letters are deeply contextual. You see, they were written in a specific moment in the biblical story after Christ's death and resurrection to specific churches experiencing specific problems and living within specific historical and cultural contexts, Jewish and Roman. Is anyone here Jewish and Roman? No, they're a little alien to us. That's the point. Thus, we need to understand that these context issues impact their content. Essentially, we're reading someone else's mail. So... We need to dig into their world, read them from their perspective as best we can, else we risk misunderstanding. But in context, they're powerful. They show us how believers have wrestled with how to apply Jesus' story to their present day across time. And I think that's awesome. But we just need to keep these issues in mind as we approach any letter, including James. So let's dive in. James begins, as you might expect, in, who wants to guess? Verse one, we read, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the 12 tribes scattered among the nation's greetings. Now, this is a really standard opening to an ancient letter. It identifies the sender, the recipient, and then it ends with a greeting. This is kind of a form from that time. The sender is James, who tradition believes, and I believe, 
is the half-brother of Jesus, a member of Jesus' own family. And James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which was the very first Christian community. That made him a towering figure in the early church. Even people like Paul and Peter, these folks that we know a lot better than James, talk about respecting him and following his lead. He is a super important figure. He was a renowned leader, a wisdom teacher, a peacemaker who guided the early church through its earliest conflicts in his community through a harsh famine, poverty, and persecution. That is until he was executed as a martyr in 62 AD. And James states he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Who knows who that is? You don't, because you didn't grow up in a Jewish community in the first century. It's a joke. (laughs) So who is that? Well, the 12 tribes were the original distinct families of Israel, which is interesting, because what happened is these distinct family lines were largely lost after the exile that ends the Old Testament. Israel is taken by Assyria and then Babylon off into foreign lands, and all of these families that were once distinct get merged and blurred together. In fact, in the first century, when James was writing, it was believed that restoring the unique 12 tribes would only come with God's kingdom. Or in our parlance today, it would literally take an act of God to make them whole again. So what's James doing by making this his recipient? Well, for one, he's making a pretty strong theological statement. He's claiming that God's kingdom has arrived, that God has restored his people through Jesus and these communities that are following him, that he's writing to. And two, he's addressing a universal audience. He's essentially saying to God's people dispersed throughout the world, which is unique. Again, If you look at the other letters in the New Testament, they address specific communities with specific problems. And yet James sets his sights wider. And this sets the tone for what follows. From here, James becomes a truly one-of-a-kind document in the New Testament. Rather than a linear theological argument addressing a specific situation like the letters of Paul, Peter, and John, James writes this series of seemingly disconnected essays with content that eschews many of the hallmarks of those other letters. He shows no interest in explicit abstract theology. A lot of you guys are like, thank God. He makes no direct mention of Jesus' early life, his miracles, his death or resurrection even. James doesn't even address issues like baptism and community or communion, hallmarks of these other letters. Instead, he focuses almost entirely on Jesus' teaching on ethics how to live. He uses things like the Sermon on the Mount to get real about how Christians need to handle concrete problems in their lives and the world. Over just 107 verses, he uses 59 imperatives or calls to direct action about how faith in Jesus needs to give believers actionable ways of handling everything from hardships to conflict to wealth. I mean, this is a letter, all to say, that is written explicitly with a universal and a practical focus, like no other letter in the Bible is, inviting believers from all generations to embrace this faith that works. 
For the next few weeks, we're gonna sit in chapter one. We're doing that on purpose because chapter one summarizes the major themes that we're gonna see pop up over and over and over again in the book. But today, we're actually gonna break our rules. We're gonna jump ahead to the end of chapter one because that is where we find James concluding this chapter with this thesis statement that is going to set the tone and the direction for all of his teachings to come. It begins in James chapter one, verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So James employs this metaphor about looking in a mirror to lay out a contrast between two groups. On one hand, people who only hear Jesus's teachings, and on the other, people who hear and become doers of Jesus's teaching. So let's unpack this metaphor. What are mirrors for? Reflect, what was that? Yeah, to, to use the C, right? They are a tool for inspecting, making improvements to our appearance, correct? We see in the mirror, we see, oh, that hair's astray, and we fix it. So James describes someone who looks at a mirror, but then, before noticing anything in it, puts it down and walks away. Is that person effectively using a mirror as intended? Is that person in any way competent in how to use this tool effectively? No. No, no, no. So what happens when we hear Jesus' teachings but don't use them to see and change what we do? Well, James says we miss the intended benefit of gazing into the mirror, of the exercise itself, the transformation of what through Jesus we see in ourselves. Keep that in mind. He continues. 25. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So in contrast to the idiot who doesn't understand how mirrors work, my reading of the text, we can instead look intently into and continually use a different mirror, one that is effective. Looks intently implies gazing at something receptively. It's like how an art lover meanders through a museum looking at each painting and being impacted by them. And continues refers to perseverance, grit, committing to practicing something consistently over time, no matter what. And the whole letter hinges on this. It all is designed, despite how disconnected it feels, to come back to this point. What is this other mirror that we are to gaze into and persevere in using to experience real transformation as God intended for his people? James calls it the perfect law that gives freedom. Trivia. What law did Jesus say perfectly fulfilled God's law, the commandments given to Israel to transform them as his people? Who knows? Hint, we talked about it two weeks ago. You're all busted. The great commandment. Matthew chapter 22. Someone asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What's God's law all about? What summarizes its purpose? 
To which Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is what it's all going to be about for James. What's the perfect mirror and who uses it correctly to experience the intended purpose of Jesus' story and his teaching? Those who look intently, receptively at Jesus' commandment to love God fully and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Who use this as their mirror for measuring all that they say and do. For weighing who they are. For inspecting themselves and persevering and being transformed to match anywhere that they see imperfection with what that commandment tells us to do. James says that's who finds the blessing of the kingdom because through hearing and becoming doers of Jesus' perfect law of love, they experience the new life of freedom that he offers and intends his teaching to reshape us fully around in this world. And from here, this letter is gonna get really, really practical. It's gonna talk about what that means it's going to talk about how we do that in the world. But for today, James provides a summary to close. His thesis crescendos into these last two verses. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue deceives themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Again, a contrast. On one hand, religion that's worthless, and this is a word about effect. It's a religion that fails to achieve its desired effect, like the misused mirror. Then on the other hand, there's a religion that is pure and faultless, that pleases God, that achieves its desired effect. And y'all, we're gonna look at these Two topics more in later weeks because James is going to come back to them over and over and over again. But for today, it's a religion that James says leads to these two things. One, look after orphans and widows in their distress. Now, in the Old Testament, the term orphan and widows is a symbol of the poor and the grieving. And their care was the epitome of pursuing divine justice in the world. In fact, when Israel wanders off into idolatry and stops following their God, you can bet every single time the Old Testament's gonna say that they stop caring for the orphans and the widows among them. Those who discover religion centered around what it was intended to be centered around, centered around the law of love here and become doers of Jesus' teachings about divine compassion, about mercy giving, about care for the poor. They tangibly care for the needy in their midst because guess what? That's what Jesus did. Their faith works for others. And they become people who avoid being polluted by the world. A pretty scary phrase, but again, we're not in their context. Biblically, the world doesn't refer to like the physical earth. It's a term for the broken ways that our world operates it's a way of existing within this world that is defined by violence, hierarchy, oppression, greed, power, selfishness, pride, and arrogance. 
Has anyone seen any of those break our world? The world, biblically, is the ways that human beings impose their will onto others, apart from God's will, apart from the law of love, and cause misery and pain in the process. Those who persevere in hearing and doing Jesus' perfect law of love grow in their ability to separate from those things, to separate, to stop participating in what has made a mess of this place, of God's good world. They experience personal transformation. They become a new kind of human being. Their faith works on and for them, transforming them in how they act, think, and live like Jesus did in their daily lives. Does anyone want to do that? This is the religion that Jesus calls us to and that James says God accepts. This is the only one, according to James. This forms the crux of his letter moving forward. It's the connecting thought that every single block builds onto, this challenge to move from people who just hear Jesus' teachings and go, oh, those are so nice. They move from that and become people who hear those teachings and then do them in the world. Especially in terms of finding a faith that exists beyond the realm of thought or good ideas, a faith that works to make us, make this world, to make others new. Grounded fully in one thing, loving God fully, loving ourselves and loving our neighbor. That's what this is all about. And y'all, what follows is a book that no matter how many times I have read it has smacked me in the face right where I'm at. There is something in it every single time that just peers into my soul and says, you gotta do better. James talks about becoming hearers and doers of Jesus' teachings and how we seek growth in hardships, changing entirely what they produce in our lives and how we embrace Jesus' wisdom and his humility, and how we care for the poor, bring in the lost, and approach conflicts without judgment, violence, and retaliation. Does anyone think we need more of that in this world? No one? James gets into our business. He reads our mail, as it turns out, challenging us uncompromisingly to measure ourselves entirely by love of God and love of neighbor, especially in the areas where quite frankly, we would prefer compromise as Christians. James is not willing to go there. But in that challenge, it also beautifully invites us to become people who more actively and passionately love God, love ourselves, love others. New human stamp with a divine love that flows out of them into this world. And I don't know about you, but I need that message in this season. I mean, this has been a hard week. And I'm going to talk about that next week. But let me just tell you that I need a book that moves me from thinking to doing. So, as we begin this journey, I just challenge you to reflect on where you need to open yourselves and let James speak to you. Who could use a faith that works in teaching us to trust God in real loss and hardship, in suffering, not abstractly, but in a way that actually lets us grow from it instead of letting it draw the worst out of us? Who could use a faith that works on their personal relationships, 
that works in transforming how we speak and act towards others, especially those that we probably don't like very much. A faith that makes peace, not division. Serenity, not anger. Grace, not resentment. Compassion, not judgment. Humility, not pride and arrogance. Could anyone use a religion that produces that in their lives? Who wants to find a faith that works in making us more generous and just and equitable in this world? less constrained by greed, less afraid of scarcity, more willing to love our neighbor and how we give away what we've been given. Who could use a faith that works in drawing us deeper into the love of God and others and ourselves in thought, emotion, word, and deed? Who wants to discover a faith that actually works? I know I do. And that's the invitation of James. And that is what I'm inviting you, if you're willing, to come along with me in finding over these next few months. And to close, I just want to read a prayer I say every morning that I think captures this powerfully. It's called the St. Francis Prayer. Just let it sit with you, hear it, and we'll go out from here seeking to do Jesus' teachings in the world. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring love. Where there is injury, let me bring pardon. Where there is doubt, let me bring faith. Where there is despair, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, let me bring your light. Where there is sadness, let me bring joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much as seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is dying that we are born unto eternal life. Amen? Amen. Amen.